Jesus is coming back. He promised He'd come. He confirmed the promises. He gave us pattern for it, by the way. We'll look at some of that pattern this morning. But He has patterned what's coming. A lot of times we wonder, what's next in life? And we'll look at patterns to figure that out. We'll look at someone's behavior. And by looking at the pattern of their behavior, we can see where they're going to go, what they're going to do, even without prescience, even without some kind of foreknowledge. We can follow the patterns, right? Well, there's some patterns here in the Scripture we'll look at today. And understand that God means what He says, and He says what He means when it comes to His glorious return. Jesus, would You bless the study of Your Word this morning? and this time of teaching, and just open our hearts to the truth. Father, we pray no manipulation on my part or anyone else's here, but simply that we would just receive what is true and right. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 19, verse 11. I saw heaven opened. It's not a common occurrence. But it's revealing to note when God opens up heaven, which He has done before. The first time we get a sense of heaven opened is actually in the form of a dream. Genesis 28, verse 12. Jacob had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, In verse 16 of Genesis 28, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. (laughs) How often is it the case with you? The Lord's in this place, and I didn't know. I didn't realize. I was so focused on what was going on around me, but the Lord is in this place. Part of the walk of faith is learning that. That the Lord is in this place. And the Lord is with His people. And it's not that the Lord goes away, it's just that we sometimes lose sight. We look away. We get distracted. Well, Jacob said, the Lord is in this place, I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So he named the place Bet-El, house of God. Now, the next time we see heaven opened... Moses and the elders of Israel are on Mount Sinai. They they look up from the mount as they're invited up to literally a barbecue with God, a feast with God. And they're on the mount. They look up and they see, as it were, the feet of God through sapphire pavement in heaven. Exodus 24, verses 10 and 11. Interesting. And then some 900 years later, the pattern continued. Heaven is opened again. The prophet Ezekiel saw it. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. It came about in the 30th year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Chabar among the exiles, the heavens were opened. And I saw visions of God. So Ezekiel, from that point forward, could make absolutely no mistake as to the origination of the transmission of the prophecies he was to receive. I mean, it came to him straight out of heaven. Not straight out of Compton, but straight out of heaven. And after this prophet, and after all the amazing prophecies of Ezekiel, another 500 years go by, but the the pattern continues. The heavens are opened again. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. 
And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting upon him. The heavens opened and the Spirit come down, came down. Note that. that the heaven, I, I hadn't even caught that before. How many times have I read about the baptism of Jesus and, and hadn't realized, hadn't thought about the fact, not only does the Spirit descend, which I tend to focus on and think about, in the form of a dove, and you hear the voice of the Father, but the heavens themselves open up that God might send His Spirit. A little while after that, John chapter 1, verse 51, Jesus said to Nathanael, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Wait a minute, that's Jacob's dream. We heard about that one. Well, Jesus repeats that. He says, you remember this? I mean, Nathaniel, you're a good Jewish boy. In fact, in fact, in John chapter 1, and I don't have time really to go into this, but Jesus sees Nathaniel sitting under a tree. But the distance was too far for Jesus to have actually seen him with his eyes. Jesus makes a comment, oh yeah, I saw you under the tree this morning. And Nathaniel's like, whoa, wait a minute. How'd you see me under the tree? That's impossible. I wasn't even anywhere around here. I was under the tree on the other side. And Jesus said, yeah, and you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And it's interesting because it's entirely likely that Nathaniel was meditating on Jacob's dream. That that morning he had been studying Genesis 28, thinking it through, processing it, and Jesus calls the whole thing to mind, blows Nathaniel's mind. But what Jesus is saying to Nathaniel is, hey, dude, I'm the ladder. I'm the way to the open heavens. I'm the way that you'll get in. In fact, didn't he say later, John 14, 6, no one comes to the Father but through me? Jacob's ladder, simply a picture of Jesus Christ. Not long after Jesus returned to the heavens, we see another scene where the heavens are opened. Acts chapter 7, verse 55. Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Because the Lord opened up heaven for Stephen to see who was cheering him on, even as the stones were flying. And Stephen's life was ending on this earth. The heavens have opened a number of times. The pattern is set. The pattern will continue. We come to the greatest opening of heaven in all of history. And if you'd like to turn back, go back to Revelation chapter 4. The greatest opening of heaven, at least up to that point, there's a greater opening that we're about to get to. But we see the heavens open for John, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what will take place, what must take place after these things. And immediately, John writes, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. So John is caught up. Caught up. Raptured. Harpazo is the word caught up, which we see in other places in the Scripture. And John is caught up to the heavens. There's an open door. And in that experience, I believe we see a representation of the rapture of the church. And we talked about that back in Revelation 4, that at that moment, at that point in the timeline, in the chronology, after these things, that is, after the church age, 
talked about in Revelation 2 and 3, that in Revelation 4, when John's caught up, it's a picture, a reminder, a statement that the church is caught up and in heaven, and John sees the church in heaven in Revelation 4 and 5. Amazing. The door will open. And Jesus will call, come up here, to anyone who believes on His name. That's His promise. After that, halfway into the tribulation, if you go to Revelation chapter 11, we see the door open again. Interesting that the occurrences are happening closer together now. More rapidly, heaven is being opened. That should tell us something. And in Revelation chapter 11, verse 19, the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the ark of His covenant appeared in His temple and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Go on ahead to Revelation 15, verse 5. We see again the heavens open. Heaven opened up. After these things I looked and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. So just in Revelation, note this, interesting, Revelation chapter 4, a door opens. Revelation 11 and 15, the temple opens, but in Revelation 19, it's the heavens themselves. Heaven opens. Heaven opens up wide. This is big. This isn't a door. This isn't simply the temple. This is heaven opening, and it's got to be big to allow the host emerging to come out, as we will see. Heaven has been opened many times before, but never like this. Revelation 19, verse 11, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on himself which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he might strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is coming back. Try saying Jesus is coming back and look in the mirror and see what your face does. Because that, honestly, that'll tell you something. If you look in the mirror, you might say, Jesus is coming back. Or you might say, Jesus is coming back. Or you might look in the mirror and say, Jesus is coming back. Your reaction to that statement should tell you a lot about where you are at this point in your history, much less the history of the world. Well, heaven opens. And in this marvelous scene, the second coming of Jesus Christ, Jesus rides to war. Now, at the beginning of the tribulation period, back in chapter 6, we saw another rider on a white horse. Jesus comes in, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, riding on a white horse. Well, another did before. A counterfeit comes riding in, a false man of peace. He's holding a bow without arrows. He's wearing a temporary leafy crown. 
And he comes to conquer, as Paul writes, 2 Thessalonians 2.10, with all the deception of wickedness. It's not true peace. It's a lie. How do you know it's a lie? Read Revelation 6. You can see who follows immediately on the heels of this white horse rider in Revelation 6. It's war and death and famine and martyrdom. It's pestilence and terror. It's horrible. Jesus comes riding in, and this is a different deal. Revelation chapter 6 is the Antichrist. He comes in with the pretense of being a world champion, a savior, but he's nothing more than a manipulated beast. On the other hand, on the other hand, Jesus already came into the world, didn't he? Already came once. He's already been here in peace. He came as an infant, born in Bethlehem, raised in the quiet hills of the Galilee, walking among the mountains there in the lower Galilee, wandering the upper Galilee. He came healing, and He came teaching, and He came loving. He came meek and gentle. He drew great crowds, not by promise of overthrow or by threats to the government, but with grace upon grace. And people were just drawn to Him. And then you remember the event, that fateful day when he rode into Jerusalem, not on a white steed, but on a donkey's foal. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 prophesied that the Messiah would come just that way. And he came offering peace and salvation in his first coming. He came as a savior to serve and to die, not to conquer but actually to allow himself to be conquered in death. Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus said, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Don't ever forget about the first coming of Jesus, even when you're looking at the second coming of Jesus. Same Jesus. Same Jesus. He came with the offer of peace. That offer still stands. That offer still holds today. That offer is still extended to you and to me right now this morning. The offer of peace and an eternity with Him. But when He comes the second time, that's it. That's when all things change. Now, in Revelation 19, he judges and he wages war. He comes in with four names that John tells us right off the bat. Verse 11, he is called faithful and true. Faithful and true. He's already been called that once. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Specifically to the church at Laodicea, which was a church under judgment. Is a church, I might add, under judgment today. A church that is lukewarm. A church that really doesn't care about the things that are important to the Father, the things that matter to Jesus. The church of Laodicea is a church of the people's rights. It's all about what the people want. And that title, Faithful and True, is how he presents himself to Laodicea. And it's a title that is particularly consistent with righteous judgment. For he who sat on this white horse is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and he wages war. And by the way, you need to understand, we need to know this is the faithfulness of God. We like to think of faithfulness in terms of friendship, you know, a good faithful friend of marriage, a relationship of trust and security, faithful We like to think of the word faithfulness when applied to God in terms of His provision. He's faithful. He'll take care of us. He will meet the needs. And all of that is true. But inherent in the faithfulness of God 
is that He must remain true, not just to you, not to me, not even just to the promises, although He will, He must remain true to Himself. Faithful and true is His name because faithful and true is who He is. And Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, He remains faithful for He cannot deny Himself. And that faithfulness that Paul is referring to there isn't a faithfulness of provision or security or trustworthiness. That faithfulness to Himself, while applicable to His love for all people, it means He must judge in righteousness. He cannot deny who He is. He cannot deny His perfection and His righteousness, and therefore He must judge with those things in mind. He's not playing around. He's not wishy-washy. Faithful and true is who He is. And so Jesus comes, faithful and true. The second name, there in verse 12, is a name written on Him which no one knows except Himself, which is cool. No one knows this name. Why even mention it then? Well, wouldn't you? I mean, I've got a secret. I have a name and I'd love to tell you, but just can't. It just drives me nuts. Tell me the name. And it's really funny to watch commentators fall all over themselves trying to come up with this name. They'll point to everywhere. They'll come up with all kinds of different things, trying to figure out, what is this name? I've done it. What is this name that no one knows except himself? The cultists will come along claiming to know the name. See, that's what cults do. They love to claim things in secret. A special knowledge. Something you don't know that I know, but maybe if you get in deep enough with us, then eventually you can know as well. And it's sure sign of a cult. And so they take this very thing, a name written on him which no one knows, and they'll try to apply it to themselves, or they'll say they know the name, or they'll fall all over themselves, as I said, trying to find this name. Here's the thing. It's unknowable. This is a name which he alone knows that is unknowable. Why is it unknowable? I don't know. It just is. A name that we do not, that we cannot know. Now, think about this. He has so many names that we do know. Marvelous names. Jesus. Christ. Adonai. Emmanuel. Isaiah 9.6 tells us His name will be called Wonderful. Counselor. Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, all names of Jesus, and there are many more. Names that we know that He's revealed to us, that He's shown, but there is a name that He alone knows. Jeremiah 23, verse 5 says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. There's another name. And He will reign as King. And act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. In the Hebrew, Yahweh Sidkenu. Is that the name? No, because it's an unknowable name and we know that name. It's a name which no one knows. I love that. I don't know about you, but it reminds me that there is still so much of Jesus to know. So much of God to discover and to learn what an adventure eternity is going to be. That we come into His presence. Remember, He's God, and you're not, and I'm not. And we come into the presence of God 
who is unique and singular and holy. And we now have all eternity to search and explore and discover His nature and He invites us to do so. So if He ever tells you what this name is, please let me know. The third name in verse 13 is the Word of God. The Word of God. Faithful and true and a name which no one knows but He Himself and then the Word of God. And this is a title that is only used by John in the New Testament. The Word of God. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and of truth. John writes in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. John likes to refer to Jesus as the Word because He is the Word. Jesus Christ, the fullest expression and revelation of God to humanity. Did I tell you, this is called the revelation of Jesus Christ. Words to reveal the Word who reveals God to us, and that is Jesus. He's the Word of God. He has a name which no one knows. He's faithful and true. And number four, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and I already pointed this out to you, but if you look back a couple of chapters to chapter 17, verse 14, we realize that King of Kings and Lord of Lords is the reverse of what was stated before. That is, Revelation 17, 14, these will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And those who are with Him are the called and chosen and faithful. Now it's King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Then it's Lord of Lords, King of Kings. Why? I can only assume that it's because the Lamb is first Lord over those who are with Him. And in Revelation 17, He has those who are with Him, those who are the called and the chosen and the faithful, and they call Him Lord. Do you? Do you call Him Lord? So we've been saying this for the last few weeks now. This is vital. This is the key. I said earlier that salvation is for all those who believe on His name. That's not just uh, generic belief. That's not all those who say, yeah, there's a Jesus. No, no. Is He your Lord? Is He Lord of Lords and King of Kings? This side of heaven, that's the deal. You come to faith in Jesus because He is your Lord and your King. When the heavens open and He returns, He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He comes riding in mighty and reigning and ruling. But we call Him Lord right now. Lord of Lords. Here He returns as King to reign. By the way, note this of the four names. Matthew, the Gospel of the Great King. King of Kings. Mark is the Gospel of the Faithful Servant who is faithful and true. Luke is the Gospel in which Jesus' favorite name for Himself is very simply Son of Man. What is that? Well, there's a name in there that no one knows. It's almost mysterious. He's Son of Man. 
Yeah, but what's his name? It's a name that he knows that no one else knows. And John's Gospel expresses the deity of Christ who calls himself the Word of God. Four Gospels, four names for Jesus, and the names in the Gospels line up. That's another pattern for you to note. Well, verse 12 tells us this one with these four names, faithful and true, a name which no one knows except himself, the Word of God, King of kings and Lord of lords, his eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. So here he comes with eyes of a flame of fire. Same eyes we saw on Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 when John sees him. His eyes are a flame of fire flashing with righteous anger. Flashing with seriousness and with the truth. This is not the soft-spoken rabbi from Nazareth. Oh, it is. It's the same. He's the same. But he's not coming with gentle brown eyes into the Galilee. Why do you say brown eyes? Well, I have brown eyes, so that's where I went. (laughs) Jesus is Middle Eastern. He didn't have blue eyes and blonde hair. I can tell you that much. Wasn't a surfer dude coming in like, what's up? He had gentle eyes, eyes of compassion, eyes of grace, eyes that that allured children and drew those who were sick and those who were hurting and those who were outcast. And, And they saw the eyes of Jesus. Well, now his eyes flash as with fire. On his head are many diadems. Diadem is a solid gold crown. Many diadems, you might think, well, that's, that's weird. Why many diadems? And it could imply in the picture a, a, a crown with many tears to it. But the point is that John is stating that here comes one with many diadems, unlimited sovereignty, absolute power. No more the suffering servant of Israel. This is now the king with unlimited sovereignty. And he comes riding in. And verse 13 tells us, and we should shake a bit at this one, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. The return of Jesus is a bloody affair. I don't know if you've thought about it that way. We like to think about it as glorious, bright, shining, marvelous, wonderful, but the the earth will mourn at His coming. And here comes one in a robe that is blood-soaked. Why is that? Some say it's in anticipation. Turn in your Bibles back to Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63. Somewhere near the middle of your Bibles, if you let it fall open, you'll be able to find Isaiah pretty quickly. Isaiah chapter 63. Now we've looked at this passage recently. I want to look at it again and understand what is taking place. Jesus in His coming. In His return. And Isaiah prophesies this. Isaiah chapter 63 and verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom? Edom is southern Jordan. It's where the city of Petra is today. It is perhaps that location where the children of Israel fleeing for their lives that we read about in Revelation chapter 12, at the midpoint of the tribulation, they go to a place in the wilderness, a place prepared for them, where they are protected for the last three and a half years of this tribulation period. And this is where Jesus goes. Interesting. Who is this? Who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? 
and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their life blood is sprinkled on my garments. And I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, and there was no one to help. I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger, and made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. And if you ever have someone who comes to you and says, I like Jesus, I just don't like the wrathful God of the Old Testament, read them Isaiah 63 and ask them, what do you think of Jesus now? Same God. Same one that we should have deep respect and awe and yes, even fear of. Described here in Isaiah 63 in this prophecy. Now, what's funny to me is if you read verse 7, Isaiah has the same reaction that perhaps you've had this morning. We read through, and this wrath, and this bloodiness, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth, and Isaiah says, I shall make mention of the loving kindness of the Lord. And praises of the Lord. According to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which He has granted them according to His compassion, and according to the abundance of His loving kindness. I want to talk about grace. Here's the prophecy. Let's talk about the loving kindness of Jesus. Here's the blood. Can we discuss mercy? <laughs> I'll tell you what, that is, that is the hardest thing about teaching through the Bible. Because if anyone is ever pastoring or teaching in a church setting, you don't want to hammer people. Oh, I guess some do. I guess some have an, you know, some desire to be a jerk. I, I don't want to. Most pastors I, do, I know don't want to talk judgment and fire and damnation and condemnation and blood and wrath. Oh man, give me the passages on grace. Let me just teach through the Gospels, you know, although there's wrath in the Gospels. But let me look at Jesus. The age of 12 in the temple, that's safe. Let me talk about Jesus at Christmas time. We need a baby in a manger, that's so safe. And let's discuss compassion and love and grace when He touches the leper. When He heals the man with the withered hand. Let's talk about the stories that are so rich and warm and compassionate and gracious. And God says, yeah, I want you to see that. But I want you to see that I poured out their lifeblood on the earth as well. This is fulfillment, my friends. Verse 13, that he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And there is so much, even in these few verses, so much prophetic fulfillment of Bible prophecy that comes together now in Revelation 19. It's truly remarkable. Charles Feinberg puts it this way. He says, he is the one with dyed garments from Basra of Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah 63. He's the righteous branch and king of Jeremiah's prediction. Jeremiah 23, we just read that. He's the returning Shekinah glory of Ezekiel's foretelling. Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 1 through 3. He's the stone cut out without hands of Daniel's announcement. Daniel chapter 2. He's the Lord coming with His saints of Zechariah's prophecy. Zechariah 14. And the appearing of the Son of Man of the Savior's own prophecy. In Matthew 24. 
All of that is coming together and so much more. You want proof? Look at the patterns. Look at the prophecies. Look at everything that's been said and see it come together here in Revelation 19 at the second glorious coming, the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. Matthew 24, 29, Jesus said, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. You see, the powers of the heavens must be shaken when heaven is opened. And Jesus said, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Explain to me how all these prophets got it together. Separated by centuries, yet united by the Spirit of God to declare the glorious return of the Messiah King. It's all here. And it's all been clarified and talked about and declared for centuries, literally for thousands of years. In fact, there are prophecies of the second coming of Christ that run all the way back right out of the crisis of the Garden of Eden. God doesn't want anybody to miss it. God doesn't want your lifeblood staining His raiment. And so He has been so clear. The question we have to ask, everybody has to ask, is are we listening? Are we paying attention? Now, for all the openings of heaven, the two most grand are the open door of the rapture of the church, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, and the whole heaven opening in this glorious return, Revelation 19, 11. And note there, you have two very distinct phases of the second coming. Now, maybe you, like me, maybe you were raised in a tradition that just taught the second coming as a single event, as a one-time deal. The second coming of Jesus, He comes, He gets us, and takes us to heaven, and that's where we are for all eternity. And as you know, I've shared with you, I asked the question, doing what? And no one could tell me. It's right here. He comes to get His people. We meet Him in the clouds. 1 Thessalonians 4. Revelation 4. We are caught up to meet Him. Phase 1. The rapture of the church. Phase 2. He comes then with His people, comes back to the earth. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. And it's all so clear and so plain. Two distinct phases of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And honestly, there's no other way to read it if you read it. You see, there are all kinds of theologies about it and traditions, approaches that I've heard, you perhaps have heard. There's no other way to read it if you read it. Because it's plain and simple. Unless you want to cut a piece out of one page and paste it onto another page and flip things around and jump through hoops to try and make your tradition, your theology, your denominational background work... I would suggest to you, let it go. And trust in the Lord for your salvation and in His Word for the truth. Two distinct stages, two phases, separated by a period of at least seven years. I say at least because the rapture doesn't kick off the tribulation. 
but the rapture does come before the tribulation. Now you might ask the question, well, why, why a seven year tribulation? Why the seven year, at, at least, why the separation? Why two phases of his coming? Why not just do it all at once? Well, for one thing, it fulfills Bible prophecy. Which again, we see the patterns over and over, and the Lord is laying it out, and he's not gonna mess up his own word. So he declared it this way. Among other prophecies, the 70th seven, that seven year period of Daniel. Daniel 9, 24 through 27. Again, we've looked at that. At this point, a lot of these things we've been talking about in the Revelation. But it also does something else. A seven year period here. It completes the wedding album. And this is what we talked about midweek. And if you weren't able to hear this midweek, please go back and listen or at least study it out because we looked at the Jewish wedding. Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9, talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb and blessed are all who are invited to it. Well, listen, the Jewish wedding comes in three phases. In case you missed it, it comes in a betrothal and then the marriage and then the feast. And traditionally, this is how it was done. The betrothal, as in the church raptured, caught up. Actually, the church is now betrothed. Let me back this up. The betrothal, you are betrothed if you believe in Jesus. You are betrothed. It's more than an engagement. It's as absolute as a marriage and yet not consummated. So betrothed, that's us now. And then the marriage is consummated at the rapture. Caught up, married. And then phase three is the feast. Look real quickly again. We got to see this. Revelation 19 verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. His bride is ready and the marriage happens. We're rejoicing. We're singing hallelujah. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts or the righteousnesses of the saints. And then verse 9, Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. So the marriage happens. Church is caught up. The bride becomes the wife. And you might note that that word for bride, back in verse 7, in the Greek it's gune, and it can mean bride. Gune is a woman, it's woman. And it means anything from a woman betrothed to a woman wed to a woman full grown and not a virgin, not a pre-married young woman. So it's wife, it's bride. It works either way. Married, of course, when you are married, ladies, you're no longer a bride. You realize that. When you're married, you're a wife. Men, I know some of you are like, you still refer to your wife as your bride and it's really cute and everything, but you're not giving her full credit. She's your wife. So the wife of God. So again, we're caught up. Caught up. And that's the marriage. And then this marriage feast happens. And what's remarkable and stunning, almost overwhelming about this, is that the feast, the feast, is all about the presentation of the wife. The groom comes out, says, here she is. Here's my wife. It's Jesus presenting you. It's Jesus presenting 
the church. It's the one time in the revelation of Jesus Christ that the revelation seems to, at least for a moment, shift from Jesus to His church. But I tell you, even that reveals Jesus. Because even in the presentation of the wife of Jesus, even in this marriage, this marriage feast, it reveals more of who Jesus is as He delights in His beloved. And we see Him and we love Him all the more that He would do this, that He would present, that He would be so proud of, so delightful in His wife. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives that way as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And so Jesus' presentation of the church reveals more of who He is even than who we are. Because we see His delight. We see His joy and His love. But but watch this. Watch this now. In this coming, the marriage supper having happened, the marriage happened, all that now has taken place. And as Jesus returns, as the heavens are opened and faithful and true, and the Word of God with a name that no one knows except Himself, and the King of kings and Lord of lords, He appears on this white steed. And verse 14, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following Him on white horses. first time I read and understood that verse... I started smiling, and I don't think I've stopped. It blew me away. I had never learned this, heard this, read this before, and and it was about 20 years ago now. Stunned me. Set me back on my heels. I had, I just for weeks was walking around going, wait, Jesus comes back. And we come with Him. And we come with Him. In Revelation 4, the door opens up and the church goes up. In Revelation 19, the heavens open, Jesus comes down, and the church comes down following the King on His white horse as we ourselves are following on white horses. My friends, most conservative scholars agree that this has to be the church. That this host in heaven... The armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following Him on white horses. It must be the church. And the most obvious reason is the connection to verse 8, that the armies in heaven are wearing the same bridal attire. Verse 8, fine linen, bright and clean. Verse 14, fine linen, white and clean. Who wears fine linen, white and clean, to war? Here, put this on. Excuse me? Did you have something in a khaki? Fine linen, white and clean. The fine linen. This is interesting. Someone made a comment on Wednesday night that linen tends to be a little scratchy, a little uncomfortable. This is fine linen. This is businon. Or, or, or busos, it's a specific kind of very expensive, soft, delicate linen. Highly uh, favored, prized in the Mideast. It's made from Egyptian flax. 
Most linen is made from flax, but it's highly prized in North Africa and in the Middle East. It's not scratchy, it's not itchy, it is soft and woven and beautiful. But notice this, and maybe you've caught this before and wondered about this. I have. I've almost wished that it was not this way. That verse 8 says that the bride's wearing fine linen, bright and clean. And verse 14 says, fine linen, white and clean. And I think, ah, if it only said the exact same thing, then we would know it was the bride. But it goes from bright to white. So, what up? I want to point this out because in verse 8, it makes sense. She's bright, glowing like a bride. And in verse 14, she's wearing fully white like priests in holy service. Bright and clean. Yeah, it's wedding day, as we say. And the bride is being presented as the wife at the marriage supper of the Lamb, glowing, bright and clean. And now returning with Jesus, white and clean, for a holy service of war, following the Lord in His return. Well, you might say, well, that's cool, but is there, is there any other evidence that we have biblically that this army is the bride? That this truly is the church returning with Jesus, coming out of the open heavens? Zechariah 14, verse 5 says, The Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with Him, the Kadosh, not the Malach. You Hebrew scholars, you know what I'm talking about. That the malach is the word for angel. And that's not the word that Zechariah uses. He uses the word kadosh. The holy ones. It translates into the Greek hagios. The holy ones. There's another word in the Greek for angel. That's angelos. And throughout the New Testament, whenever angelos is used, you're talking about an angel. And whenever hagios is used, you are not talking about an angel. You're talking about the saints. The saints of God. And sometimes it's translated holy ones, and sometimes it's translated saints. But in your Bibles, brothers and sisters, if you see holy ones or saints, it's hagios, and it's referring to the people of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Paul said, another piece of information, Who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? It is not even you... He's talking to the church. In the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming. At His coming. Not at His calling home. Paul knows the distinction. But at His coming, you in the presence are our joy. The church. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 12. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. Verse 13. So that He may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. He comes with the saints. With the Hagias. With the Holy Ones. That is those who have been made holy by Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 1.10 He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. And you can go all the way back to the seventh generation from Adam where Enoch prophesied as we read in Jude 14 Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His Hagias, His Holy Ones. Revelation 19.14 is just declaring what the Scriptures have declared all over the place. That Jesus comes out of the open heavens and the church comes with Him white and clean riding in service 
of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, some will add in Old Testament saints who are before the Lord, who are in heaven now, whose spirits are at home with the Lord. Some will add in tribulation saints and say this this army from heaven, it's got to include them. And some will even say, yeah, and the angels, because we know He dispatches angels to the four corners of the earth to, to gather His people, Israel. So there's got to be angels involved. And you know what? i, I got no problem with that. So long as I'm there. You can say saints out of the Old Testament. Tribulation saints, angels. Man, include them all. That's fine with me. But the evidence is, the clear and unequivocal evidence is, that biblically the church comes back with Him. And that is unquestionable. And I just want to assure you, Who's on this ride? One more verse you might want to note. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. When is He revealed? Revelation 19. When are you revealed with Him in glory? Revelation 19. We come back with Him. Any questions? I've got one. I got a question for you. When he returns to reign, will you also be revealed with him in glory? Are you on this ride? When you sit here this morning and you read about this and you think about this, does your spirit rise up in you? Do you know that's me? I'm going to have a white horse. I'm going to name mine Shadow Facts. No one else can use that's mine. And I have to because my grandson still calls me Gandalf sometimes. And so that's how it works. Lord of the Rings fans will get that. So, are you revealed with Him in glory? Are you on this ride? If you can't say with absolute certainty this morning, (laughs) yes, that's me, I'm, I'm part of that. I don't even care what my rank is. I'll be private at the very last horse as long as I'm coming. I just want to be on the ride. And if you know that you know that you know you're coming back, you'll be revealed with Him in glory. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Tell people about it. But if you don't know this morning, if you're not sure, I I understand. I, I, I get Isaiah. I get Isaiah wanting to slide quickly over to talk about loving kindness and grace. It's it's a tough place to be. There's an ache in our hearts as followers of Jesus, isn't there? For anyone who has a son or a daughter, anyone who has a, a husband or a wife, anyone who has a mother or father or friends, who don't know Jesus or who are walking away from Jesus or or standing in rebellion, there is a strain in our voices. I don't know if I've told you this, but there there are Sundays when I know I'm I'm working hard, when I'm trying to get the message across because my voice strains. I I get home Sunday afternoon and and I have a sore throat. It's not all the time, but there are Sundays I'll walk in the door and go, Cheryl, I don't know if if anyone heard what I think the Lord was trying to get across because I was straining to get it across. And I hate that feeling. None of us like to be in that place of not being heard. But there is an ache in our hearts when we tell people about Jesus and we are not heard. 
People who are in ignorance right now. And I, I don't mean that arrogantly myself, but those who just don't know. Or people who are walking in arrogance. Or full-on rebellion to the Lord to know Him. I mean, you know, isn't this weird? This is what we're talking about. To know God. To behold Jesus. To fall before Him in love and in worship. To be caught up as the bride of Christ to become the wife. Why would anybody say, eh, I don't need that. See, we know the glorious return of the King will be either wonderful or dreadful. And it all depends on whether He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings now before He's King of Kings and Lord of Lords then. And Christians, don't wimp out. Don't back down. I know it's tough. It is tough for all of us. It's that, I've said so many times, the divine tension between our desire to be home and be with the Lord and just have it done and our realization of those who are lost. And there's a tension in between it. And so what you can do is just go, I'm just going to focus on being home with the Lord. I I can't think about that. I don't want to deal with that. I'm saying, Christians, deal with it. Because somebody needs you to deal with it. Somebody needs you to deal with them. To love them enough to say, this, this may cause you offense, but I have to tell you again. This may upset you. I can't walk away. And again, Isaiah. (laughs) Isaiah reading about, writing about, he's coming in a robe dipped in blood. He's not coming meek and mild. He's not coming on the foal of a donkey. He's not coming to die. He did that already. He is coming in a robe dipped in blood. And I feel Isaiah. And I get that, reading about, talking about the bloodshed at Basra and quickly changing his tune. I shall make mention of the loving kindness of the Lord. I want to talk about grace. Then talk about grace. Talk about grace. You share the love of God today with somebody who's rejected. I don't want to hear about that Jesus stuff. Can I just tell you how much He loves you? Can I just describe for you what He's promised? I'm not hearing judgment. I'm not hearing condemnation. I'm here to tell you about the love and the grace and the mercy. And if there's anything you ever wish could be washed out of your life for good, He promises that. It's the loving kindness of the Lord. I just want to make mention of these things. Grace and goodness and compassion. And I can. And that's our message because, well, it's still called today. And as long as it's still called today, we get to talk about grace. We get to share the mercy of God. But when Jesus comes, He rides to war in judgment and finality. Don't be caught on the wrong side of the war. Verse 15, For from His mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. We've seen this sword before. Revelation 1.16, Revelation 2.12 and 16, and Revelation 19.15, and we see it again at the end of the chapter in verse 21. This is the sword of his mouth, and it is not that precise surgical dagger that we read about in Hebrews 4.12. 
where it says, I'll read it to you, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to separate and work and surgically move. That's what it does. It's the makaira in the Greek, and it's a very short sword, or you could think of it as a scalpel. But now this sword, this is the Ramphaya, it's the long sword or, or spear or javelin, and in the revelation of Jesus Christ, this is the killing sword. It's the only sword that's in the book of Revelation, and we see at the end of verse 21, the rest were killed with the sword, the Ramphaya, which came from his mouth, the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. There are two suppers in Revelation 19. There's the marriage supper of the Lamb, supper of grace, a supper of compassion and loving kindness and joy and celebration, and there's a supper for the birds. And the choice is yours and mine. Now, this may sound harsh. In fact, you read on, he strikes down the nations. He'll rule them with the rod of iron. And people read that and go, wow, that's kind of serious. Hey, he's coming to rule. However, note this rule and rod in this sentence. And going all the way back to the source verse, which is Psalm chapter 2, verse 9. Rule and rod, the word rule in the Greek here, it's poimano, which is to shepherd. And the word rod here is hrabdo, which is staff. He comes to shepherd them with a staff of iron. Now you might say, well, shepherd and staff is better than rule and rod, but he still says iron. Yeah, because the shepherding rule of Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom will be firm and unbending. Absolute truth. No question of what is right and true and just and fair. A staff of iron. Implying and describing a shepherd rule that is rock solid. And again, a direct reference to Psalm 2 verse 9, which ends Psalm 2 verse 11. Worship the Lord with reference or with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way for His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Will you take refuge in Him? Do you now? Do you take refuge in Him? Will you be revealed with Him in glory? Verse 16, And on His robe, And on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Brothers and sisters, let's get clear about this. It doesn't mean that Jesus went out and got himself inked. (laughs) Right there, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, on his thigh. He's got a thigh tattoo. No. (laughs) On the corners of the Jewish prayer shawl, the talit, are knotted fringes. Or tassels, they're called the zitzit. And you've seen those, if you've seen a prayer shawl, they're, they're knotted on, on all four corners of the shawl. And often on those corners, there was an embroidered patch that would have the name or symbol of the tribe to which the person belonged, or a title of the owner of the prayer shawl, something there that would indicate his authority. His authority. Seated on a horse... The seat seat rests on the thigh. He has a name written on his thigh. King of kings and Lord of lords. 
Matthew 14, 36, the people implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were healed. And we believe that that was the tzitzit on the talit, on the prayer shawl of Jesus. If I could just touch, because that was the place of authority. And to a Jewish person, they would recognize, if I can touch that, I'm touching something that speaks of the nature of the person. So the nature of Jesus. You remember the story of the woman with the 12-year bleed? Talked about in in Luke chapter 8, verses 43 through 48. And I'm not going to tell the whole story now, but you remember, if you've read it, that Jesus was in a crowd of people, people pressing in from all sides, and she's thinking to herself, she's been to every doctor, she spent every dime that she's ever had. Okay, I'm telling the story anyway. And she reaches through, she thinks, if I can just touch the fringe of his cloak, if I can just, and she touches, and boom, instantly she's healed. She stops bleeding. The weakness, can you imagine the weakness of constant bleeding and the loss of iron in the system, and and that she would be so weak if I could just, and she does, and she's healed, and Jesus goes, remember this? Who touched me? Peter's like, uh, Master, everyone touched you. No, 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 Jesus said, I felt power go out from me. <laughs> she touched the hem and the bleeding stopped. That's a key right there. You touch the hem and the bleeding stops. You touch the authority of Christ. You, you acquiesce to the Lordship of Jesus and the life bleeding stops. And you are healed by faith in Jesus Christ. I wonder, I wonder if she'll remember that on this day. As we're all coming back, and I think she's going to be coming back with him, and she's going to be shouting, whooping, and hollering on her white steed, feeling great. As she comes back, for there on his robe and on his thigh is the title for all to see, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is coming back. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. But he's coming in a robe dipped in blood. I got one last thing I got to tell you because this just is strange to me. Because as I said, he's coming in a robe dipped in blood. Some say it anticipates, and I believe it does, the wine press of the wrath of God. The Isaiah 63 prophecy, his raiment is stained with blood. And it's a prophecy of the blood that will be spilled all the way from Basra and Edom all the way up to the Valley of Megiddo in that massive campaign. But there is a problem here. And the problem is in, it's in the sequence. Because, note this, his robe is blood-soaked before he ever arrives. It's before he gets to Basra. The heavens are open, and I looked and I saw, and this one I saw on this white steed with those following him, his robe is dipped in blood. Now this may very well be an allusion then to Isaiah 63. I think, like I said, it is. This is where he's going, this is what's going to happen, but it still doesn't answer the question that his robe is blood-soaked before he arrives. There's yet another strange symbolic tradition that is part of the Jewish wedding. The groom would come out the next morning after the wedding night and he would produce the bedclothes to prove that his wife had been a virgin. Now in American culture we might go, ooh, what? He would bring out a sheet or the bedclothes and reveal blood 
And you might say, well, that's embarrassing and shameful. It would only be shameful if there was no blood. Because if there was no blood, the indication was the woman was not a virgin at the marriage. So the groom would come out. And that would be inspected and seen. And for the wife now of the groom, this would be a great honor. A sign of dignity. A sign of, well, pride. That she was a virgin at the wedding. See, the blood on the robe either projects judgment about to come, or it proves the purity of the bride. But here's what's remarkable. It's not your blood. It's His. His blood that makes us pure. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is that flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And He's coming in glory, King of kings, Lord of lords. Will you be revealed with Him? He wants you to be. He's got a horse waiting for you. Will you trust Him? Let's pray together. Lord, what we see here in this remarkable pattern of the heavens being opened is that if we will give You our hearts, heaven is open to us. And I pray, Father, a Revelation 4 prayer over our fellowship this morning that when the door is open, we all will be caught up. That there will not be a one among us this morning who is not saved, who is not raptured and brought home to be with Jesus. Not a one, Father. Every one here today, Father, I pray, would make up the bride. I extend this prayer to the work of the church in the world today, that people will hear this truth, will see the preciousness of the blood of Christ that proves our purity if we will trust You. Father, I just pray for salvation. And I ask, Lord, that when the door of heaven is opened and we are caught up, Father, I just pray, oh, I just pray, that not only will, will we all be there, but we'll be there filled with the joy of lives lived walking with You. Father, it's, it's a remarkable message because it is on the one hand both heavy and fearful, even dreadful, Lord, but on the other hand, wonderful and joyful and alluring. And I pray that we will be on the side of joyful. Now, Father, we we strain in our voices and ache in our hearts, but we recognize, even this morning, it is not something we we can accomplish or do in someone else's life. Holy Spirit, You have to do the searching. You have to do the changing. We just pray that we can be vessels and mouthpieces of Yours. But Holy Spirit, seek and save the lost today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And if that is you, if you're willing to confess and accept that without Jesus you are not the pure bride, you're not 
the Holy One. Perhaps you might think or want to think that you are if you don't have Jesus. He's the purifier. If that's you this morning and you want to be saved, for all eternity, washed in the blood of Jesus, we invite you to just come forward. Come forward and we'll pray with you. And you can receive Jesus as Lord of Lords today. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you want to pray for somebody that you know, then I invite you to come and do that as well. Won't you come? Let's stand and sing.